You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. A lot of people don't feel comfortable talking about money. And I think it's because of this old belief that has gone around that says it's improper or it's rude or it's gauche or it's arrogant. You know, there are all these rules surrounding talking about money. And I think each person will internalize that differently. One person might think it's not okay to talk about money, so they just never practice. So it's awkward. So when it comes time for negotiating pay, that's a non-starter. It's not even something that crosses their mind, you know? Her Money is supported by Edelman Financial Engines. Investing in the market is about more than just money. It's about investing in your future and your choices. It's investing in you. If you're looking to optimize your investment strategy, visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today. Hey, everybody, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us at Her Money today. We're so glad that you're here. This morning, before settling in to record this show, I spent a little time scrolling Twitter. Dangerous, I know, but I did. And I caught the now viral tweet from Nina Strominger, who is a legal studies and business law professor at Wharton. And she had asked her class what they thought the average American salary was. And a quarter of them said it was over six figures. And one even said... It was $800,000 a year. Well, her tweet has now been liked more than 250,000 times. And in a follow-up, she wrote, A lot of people want to conclude that this says something special about Wharton students. I'm not sure it does. People are notoriously bad at making this kind of estimate, thinking the gap between rich and poor is smaller than it is. And for those of you who are wondering, the average annual wage in the U.S. for 2021 was actually about $53,000. And of course, this disparity between rich and poor, or even between rich and middle class in this country, it's nothing new. And, and neither is the lack of understanding at just how vast that gulf really is and all the ways it manifests itself. When you earn less, you invest less. When you have less earnings, you're less likely to be able to afford an education, buy a home, or even have an emergency fund that can help you make it through tough times without taking on a lot of unaffordable debt. And for so many years, for so many decades, if you weren't a high earner, in fact, if you weren't a high male earner, then the stock market, the whole world of wealth management, so many other aspects of finance, they were pretty much closed off to you. And I'm so incredibly thankful that this is finally starting to change, that these worlds are becoming more accessible, but we got to just put it out there that there is still a really long way to go, which is why today I am really excited to be introducing you to one of the amazing women leading the charge to bridge the gaps and bring finance to the people. Paco de Leon is an author, an illustrator, a musician, and the founder of the Hell Yeah Group, a financial firm dedicated to inspiring creatives to engage with their personal and business finances. She's a well-known TED speaker. She lives in LA with her wife. Paco, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. 
I want to throw one of your own questions back at you in order to tee this off. Your new book, which includes your own illustrations, amazing, by the way. It basically sets out to answer the question, why does so much financial advice apply only to the wealthy few? Let's start right there because I want to know this answer. I mean, I kind of think about it in this analogy. A lot of the financial advice out there was for historically, it's for somebody who, let's say, owns a boat. It's like as if the (laughs) advice out there is for people who own boats, but the great majority of people will never own a boat, if that makes sense. There's just such a mismatch between the people that need the help and the people that get the help. And I think it's because, well, the model was pretty weird for many, many years, right? I come from the world of traditional financial planning, which meant if you don't have $1 million to invest with us today, we cannot help you. It just doesn't make sense for our economics. So I think that's one huge reason why. And because, frankly, it's very uncomfortable to confront the fact that sometimes the reason why some per- one person makes money and the reason why the other person doesn't is outside of our control in a lot of ways because of, you know, structural things, institutional racism, the wage gap, things like that. And I think we're only now starting to get comfortable as a society to start to, you know, point our finger at something and say, hey, this has been terrible and what are we going to do to change it? As you said, you come out of this more traditional realm of financial planning. And, you know, there are a lot of financial planners out there who are wonderful and they go about their business and they don't set out necessarily to create this kind of change. What is it about you? Tell me more about you and what inspired you to write this. Because your goal here, at least as I understand it, was really to give power back to the people who didn't have financial education. You know, my old boss would always call me an agent of change because even when I was working for a firm, I would always, you know, come up with different ideas, ways to be more efficient, all these things that we could do. And sometimes people were really receptive to that. And other times, I think because I was so young and bright eyed and excited, you know, they would just kind of be like, sit down, kid. We get that you like to change things, but we like how things are going. I am inherently a change agent. I love change. And I know a lot of people are scared of change. But to me, it's so thrilling. It's, It's like a roller coaster. It's like what's around the bend. I have no idea what's next. And that is frightening, but it's what makes entrepreneurship exciting and it's what makes life exciting. But really what drives me and what drove me to write this book and to put the information out there is because I'm a creative person myself. I started playing the guitar when I was 15 years old. I started a band when I was 16 years old. And throughout all of those years of playing in the band until now, When you play in a band, you meet all sorts of musicians. And then now that you're in this group of musicians, you meet painters and artists and ceramicists and woodworkers. You just kind of go down this rabbit hole of this community. And I just noticed that they were not being served. There was no way that my firm that I was working at could help them because, you know, they weren't the Keith Herrings or the Basquiat's of our time yet. And so... Honestly, I saw real need in the market in that sense, but I just feel so compelled because I felt 
like I was privileged. I got into that room. I was on track to, you know, be a financial planner. I was a junior planner. And I just kept feeling this intuition that, hey, shouldn't you tell more people about all the things you're learning and break it down for them? And so over the years, that intuition, that voice just got louder and louder and louder until I couldn't ignore it anymore. When we think about creatives and the minute you started talking about playing the guitar as a young person and having a band, I my mind went to my brother and his family. My brother Dave is a musician. He was a musician for many, many years with a day job at a financial firm because that's what it took. And in the last... I would say five-ish years, he's been a musician where music paid the bills, which has just been so exciting. His wife is a fabrics designer, so she is creative. Their two kids, their twin daughters, my nieces, are 16 years old, both incredibly creative. One of them I've been talking about a little bit on this show. My niece, Sydney, has had quite a pandemic where she started a business silk screening clothing that she sells on Depop. And a couple weeks ago, Willow Smith showed up on page six wearing her leggings. So like she is selling stuff and making money. And I keep calling and saying Roth IRA, Roth IRA, Roth IRA. But What is it about creatives? Like what makes them different? What makes freelancers different in terms of the flows of their money and in terms of how they need to shape a financial life? Definitely. Creatives kind of march to the beat of their own drum, as they say, right? They don't just accept the default or they don't want things to just be whatever they are at face value. I think that they're deeply curious people. And in order to be creative, you have to be deeply in touch with your feelings, right? You need to be able to emote and understand what you feel because that's the life of a creative. And so I think, you know, the world of money just feels closed off to them. I think that the kinds of people who are presenting financial information, they're like two ships passing in the night. And I feel a tremendous amount of privilege that I'm a creative person who can really understand this abstract stuff and is really great at explaining this to the creative community because I know that I'm really bringing them into a world that they thought was not for them. I mean, one of the big challenges is like, how do you manage consistent income? And the psychology of I'm a creative person who puts their soul and their heart and their entire being into what I create. And then now I have to take it to the marketplace. I have to participate in commerce. And now I have this tension of does the market value me for me, right? There's that kind of conflation of my work is me and the money that I get is a signal of my worthiness, of my worth. I think there are a lot of people who are not creatives who feel that too. Absolutely. I think there are a lot of women in particular in the workplace who know they're underpaid and and have that struggle every single day. Your book helps people get to the root of why you feel weird about money. And you go into some personal beliefs and some emotional patterns that hold us back and some of the methods that we can use to move past those. Can we dig into some of those? I mean, what are the beliefs and patterns that you see most often and what are your most successful strategies for getting over them? Our beliefs, they're also called cognitive biases, right? They are narratives and stories that we've observed while we were growing up and from everywhere, from our caretakers, from movies, from television, from media, from every place. And we all take what we've seen 
and we write our own little story and then we run this story in our heads on loop, you know? And so one really common one that I think all of us can understand is this idea that, you know, you you and I, Gene, we don't conform to this belief, but a lot of people don't feel comfortable talking about money. And I think it's because of this old belief that has gone around that says it's improper or it's rude or it's gauche or it's arrogant. You know, there are all these rules surrounding talking about money. And I think each person will internalize that differently. One person might think it's not okay to talk about money. So they just never practice. So it's awkward. So when it comes time for negotiating pay, that's a non-starter. It's not even something that crosses their mind, you know? Like on a larger societal level, we can look at the workplace as a beautiful example where this belief, this bias has been internalized and it becomes part of culture, right? Most employers, they don't want their employees talking about salary and that then perpetuates inequality. So that's a way that, you know, a belief, a narrative can really kind of burrow its uh, essence into who we are and how we act in the world or don't act in the world. And I think everybody will approach unearthing those narratives and examining them differently. For some people, they might just want to go on a walk and go for a run and contemplate that belief. Where are the ways, you know, they might ask themselves, where are the ways that, you know, not talking about money has shown up in my life? For me, you know, I think I've gone on kind of a self-help journey to unearth the things I've needed to deal with. I meditate regularly, which is helpful because then I don't feel so attached to the thoughts that I have in my head. And journaling, I think, is really great. I think talk therapy is really good for just being able to feel your feelings. I know I struggled with that for a long time. And if I was afraid to feel something, there was no way I was going to confront my shame or my guilt or any of those feelings. I was just going to bury my head. I've had that experience of being in a therapist's office and, you know, they realize you're feeling something before you realize you're feeling it. And all of a sudden tears are streaming down your face and you don't even know why you're crying, but you're allowing yourself to feel something that you haven't really allowed yourself to feel before. You know, one of the things that I think holds people back and particularly people who have an uneven income it's almost inevitable that there will be times when money just feels really scarce, right? And then it's a lot harder, I think, to sort of force yourself to save when times are good because when times are good, you're feeling like, oh my gosh, now I have to do all the things I didn't allow myself to do when times were bad. What is your best advice for income leveling and for getting people who are creative and who don't have often the backbone of an employer providing benefits like health insurance and a retirement account to get there? That is a tough one, Jean, but I'll do my best to tackle that ball of wax. I think what creative people who are working for themselves need to understand is that there's a trade-off that they're making. There is a tremendous amount of freedom that you have when you're self-employed. And you get to leverage the tax code in a way that employees can't, which is amazing. But that freedom comes at a cost. You are in charge of your income taxes for all the self-employment income you have. And like you just mentioned, you're in charge of your health insurance. I think the best thing creative people need to do is really understand how much they need to earn in order to pay themselves. And the next layer is in order to run their business. 
And then I would add a third layer and I would say multiply that number by 30% for taxes. You also have to be thinking about when you pay yourself, you're not just thinking about paying your student loans and paying your rent and your groceries. You also want to think about what do you need to pay yourself so that you have discretionary income, so you feel like a human being living a fulfilling life, and how much you need to pay yourself in order to reach your financial goals for the future, so savings and investment. So when it comes to pricing and what you charge and how you look at self-employment, you really have to look at it from a strategic perspective so that you know where you're aiming your arrow, so to speak. And then the hard part is really settling into a process. And so one process that freelancers have to learn how to run is what is your marketing process? This is one of the things I see a lot of people conflating. They think they have a cash flow problem when they're self-employed, but ultimately they have an income problem, which is sometimes a marketing problem. And a marketing problem is an onion. You could be saying the wrong things to the right people or the right things to the wrong people and your messaging could be all weird. And so there's a lot of experimentation, right? Kind of like having a hypothesis and then testing it when it comes to being self-employed. And I know that can sound overwhelming, but to me that sounds exciting because when there's no formula, there's actually more ways to win. Yeah. And I also think it forces you to sometimes make the hard choices. I mean, back to my brother for a second, like there was never a year where he wanted to be working at this financial firm and not being a full-time musician, right? But he's he ran the numbers and he's a father and he figured out what he needed to do in order to, you know... It, support himself and his family and 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 so he did his music on the side for a really really long time and sometimes i think you know we have to acknowledge that we have to acknowledge that we haven't figured out the right way to peel the onion and so until we figure out the right way we're going to have to operate our lives in a little bit where our creativity maybe runs, or at least the creative projects that we're doing for ourselves, not for an employer, run on a separate path. Absolutely. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's great that people are still able to work on their creativity because they have a job that is paying the bills. You know, it, it allows them to have the freedom to explore their creativity and to maintain that relationship and to not strangle it when you bring commerce into it. It gives space. In your book, you write, in a society where money is power, the rest of us need tools for taking control, not only of what's filling our wallets, but what's filling our minds. And, well, I've been doing this job a long time, and I feel an advocate for financial literacy for most of that time. And yet I don't think we've moved the ball very far. I feel like there is so much more that people need to do and understand. What do you think we should be doing, particularly to ensure more of a level playing field when it comes to financial knowledge? I think we all need to recognize that a lot of us need to have these harder conversations in the world and with ourselves and with our peers and with our colleagues. I think we all need to start confronting the fact that the world is unequal, that many of us are hurt financially because we're marginalized once, right? But then the next layer is we internalize those beliefs. I have internalized that 
I am not as worthy as somebody else because of the color of my skin and because of how I look and move in the world. And so I think there's a lot of healing that needs to be done. And it's very uncomfortable. It's very awkward. It's very, you know, it doesn't feel good to look at the ways that we are perpetuating inequality. But I think that's one huge pillar. I think just doing this, having conversations about money in a way where it's accessible to all people, that is another huge pillar, being open and talking about money and being able to say, yeah, sometimes the circumstances are really hard to overcome and, you know, looking at it from that angle and really helping people understand that even in a tough situation, you have agency. You just have to pause and reflect and find your agency. Because even in a perfect world or even in a society where we have universal basic income, you still have to learn how to budget your universal basic income. You're still going to have to, you know, figure out what to do with your money. So I think that there, you know, we need to understand the overlap of, you know, society can do better, but also where's our agency. Put a pin in that thought about budgeting, because when we come back, we're going to get tactical about your best strategies for budgeting and paying down debt and student loans and some real building blocks of a financial life. But now I'm going to just take a moment. As Paco was saying, when it comes to investing, we all know that confidence is key. Confidence in your ability, your knowledge, and your strategy. Are you ready to do more with your investments? I thought so. That's why you should visit edelmanfinancialengines.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor. You'll be able to review your current situation with an expert and get tailored investment strategies to help you build and grow and preserve your wealth. You can get started at planefe.com slash hermoney. Do more for your future right now and speak with an advisor today. I'm talking with Paco de Leon, author of Finance for the People. Okay, tactics. What are the best ways to get people who have never budgeted before budgeting? I think the best way to get people to budget is to position budgeting as something else, as a spending plan. And that's what I have done in the book. And I've worked as a financial planner, so I have created budgets and I have looked at the different software and I have even myself failed at trying to keep a budget. But as soon as I attacked my budgeting and approached it from a perspective of a spending plan, it made it so much easier. So the way that I like to look at spending and budgeting is I like to look at expenses in three broad buckets. There's the bills and life bucket, which is all of your essentials, your the food you need to eat, the roof over your head, the insurance and the debts you need to pay. Then the second bucket I look at is called future and goals. That's all the money that you're putting into saving for the future, an emergency fund, retirement, all that good stuff. And the third bucket is your fun and BS. And that's all of your discretionary expenses. What I like folks to do is to think about their money in that way. And especially if you're a freelancer, now you see there are three big buckets that you need to hit. They're kind of like walking upstairs, right? You want to make sure you're earning enough to hit that bills in life account. Then you want to scale up and make sure you're hitting that future and goals account. And then you want to make sure you're scaling up and hitting the discretionary, the fun and BS. And that's really helpful if you are bridging your way to self-employment as well. So you know exactly when you're hitting these buckets and when you can totally just quit your job and work for yourself. 
The other way to think about that is to truly break up your spending. So I think having a bills and life checking account and a fun and BS checking account is a way for you to put a stop loss, put a control mechanism on the amount that you spend for fun. And you don't have to do the mental math of like, okay, if I grab this pizza with my buddies and I get a few beers, is my rent check going to go through? Or You know, it just kind of removes that extra layer, which I think is really intimidating for people. And this works really well with couples, right? The me, mine, and ours account, that's kind of the same perspective. The bills in life is the joint account and each of you will have your fun and BS account. That way you don't have to run all of your fun expenses by your spouse and I think that or your partner and I think that will save a lot of uh, headache and a lot of heartache and a lot of you know you have autonomy over how you spend yeah I think that's really really important in a relationship the caveat here is that you need to have a buffer in these accounts and so the caveat is you have to be earning enough and you know this is the hardest part of financial conversations is when people are not earning enough Well, I think to just come back to the point that you made about these accounts, you can use them if you're trying to bridge your way to self-employment. I mean, how much of a buffer do you need in order to say, yeah, I'm good. I actually can quit my job and work for myself. Well, in terms of the account buffers, I like a month's worth of expenses because, you know, if you have cash flow timing issues, meaning maybe all your bills are due at a certain time, it kind of just allows you to have that ease and freedom. You're not worried about, you know, the gas bill making your account overdraft. So I like to have a month's worth of buffer in each account. But of course, I also adhere to the advice that everybody needs an emergency fund savings as well. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And I agree with you on the spending plan rather than the budget. It's just, for me, it's budgeting backwards, right? That's sort of how I've always done it. Figure out where your money's going and then we'll change it, right? But you got to know where it's going first and then we can tweak it and shape it into those buckets so that they actually work, assuming, of course, that you do have the income to support it. Debt is the thing that gets in the way for many, many people. And it's been such a pain point for people. As I hear from a lot of our listeners who are just, they've enjoyed this student loan hiatus. They're worried that the lenders are going to start expecting the money again. Do you have specific strategies for dealing with debts, for dealing with student loans, for dealing with credit card debt? Yeah. You know, I think the strategy is really going to depend on everyone's situation personally, but If I could just tackle this feeling that folks have about the pending, you know, resuming having to pay back their student loans, I think you should practice right now. You can just set up whatever the monthly payment is that you're going to be paying for your student loans that will be resuming in a few months' time. You should take that amount, set up an automatic transfer, and just start dumping it into your emergency fund or another savings account. And even open up a savings account at the bank, at a different bank than that current checking account. So it really feels like that money went away. And just start to train yourself with that feeling, right? Okay, I don't have that extra money in there and you just get used to it, right? There's this concept and I touch on this in the book called the hedonic treadmill or human adaptation. And it's basically theorizes and states that as humans, our baseline happiness, it might pop up, it might spike up and go down with events, with good things and bad things, but we're pretty simple creatures, I suppose, because over time, that baseline level happiness generally returns to it. So I think if you just get used to that money going out of your account in ahead of time, by the time you have to pay back your student loans, it won't feel as painful. And guess what? You've just saved a bunch of money. Congratulations. 
I like that advice. It's kind of similar. I get questions from people who ask me if they'll be able to stay home with their children for an extended period of time after they give birth or after they have a baby. And I often say practice. That nine months that you have or however long you're waiting for your child, if you're adopting when you know that the child is coming, you just pretend that that income is not there because that's a really great way to understand if you can do it. How do you help people address competing priorities like debt and retirement savings when there just seems like there's never enough money to go around? I don't know if this is going to be an unpopular perspective, but one of the things that I focus on when I talk about money and I am listening to what people are struggling with is I emphasize the earnings piece. I think that we have the opportunity to earn more and I have maybe optimistic to a fault perspective that people have much more agency over their earnings than maybe they believe. And I'm one of those people, you know, I was a broke financial planner. I was riding my bike to work. 15 miles was my commute in LA traffic during rush hour. And I had a garden where I was growing lettuce to save a couple of bucks on lettuce. And my perspective, granted I'm privileged because I have a college degree, I'm living in a major city. My perspective was that I can't earn enough. And so when it comes to wanting to earn and reach goals that are competing, competing priorities, I implore you to look on the income side. Is there places for you to earn more so that you can feed both of the goals? How did you flip the switch for yourself? How did you get from that point where you were on that bike, growing your own lettuce, to I'm not doing this anymore. I can earn more money working for myself. It's actually a weird story. My boss at the time, he had me doing the books for his business because I had bookkeeping experience. And I always knew how much more he earned than me. It wasn't a problem, of course, because he's 10 years older than me. It's his business. I was there to help. But one day I was just curious. And so I I just did a calculation. I wanted to see how much money I earned compared to him. And it turned out to be like 13 cents on the dollar, which just felt ridiculous. You know, it just, Mm -hmm. that number staring back at me made me feel kind of like an idiot. Like I had been tricked. The way that I looked at it was I suddenly didn't think I was saving myself $40 a week on gas by riding my bike. I was saving him $40 a week by not asking for what I needed. And so that one day, that perspective, I blew up my life after that. I found another job and I started working from home. And then my mindset started to shift because I was working for this guy who had an online business and it was scrappy. And I was like, oh, wait, so when you work for yourself, it's kind of like you don't really know what you're doing and you're just kind of making it up as you go along. That sounds terrifying and awesome. And so my worldview just started to change with that position. And truly, I didn't start earning more until I realized how much I internalized these beliefs that I wasn't worthy, that I wasn't deserving. And I don't think just changing your beliefs is going to combat inequality. I don't think that. But it just gave me agency. And it showed me that, okay, maybe there's ways that I'm underselling, you know, maybe I can raise my prices. The analogy I like to make is where am I being the $1 oyster where people see that and they're like, oh, $1 too cheap. You know, there's ways I can have a conversation and earn more and communicate my value. For somebody who's listening to you and thinking, yes, this is what I need a dose of. I just don't know what the first step is to take, right? I don't know. I know I could be earning more. I should be earning more. 
but I'm feeling still like I'm an imposter. I'm feeling still like maybe somebody's going to look at me and think, yeah, she doesn't know what she's doing. I mean, how do you get past it? How do you get that agency, I think, is really what I want to know. It's an ongoing process. I still struggle with my worthiness all the time. Like I'll be standing in Nordstrom and there will be a very nice $45 shirt and I will want it and I will know I can afford it. Yet I will hear that voice in the back of my head, right? The narrative I have is it's not on sale. Like my mom was very big on the, we can only buy it if it's on sale. And I just, for a long time, I didn't understand that I could just invest in Paco, that like my own health and well-being mattered. So not only was I not buying the $45 shirt, but like, you know, I'm not investing in a mattress that's going to allow me to get the best sleep and therefore I can show up to be my best self. So I think it's an ongoing process. I think the very first thing you need to do is just pause and sit quietly and, you know, maybe start journaling and figuring out where does this idea come from that you don't deserve to be paid a certain amount? Where did that come from? For me, it came from going to Catholic school for 13 years, which is a privilege and a problem because I was told I'm not enough, that I am fundamentally flawed. And then that turned into... I'm just not worthy, you know, I don't deserve as much as others. So when you start to pinpoint that, that story, that narrative where that came from, okay, now you can start to question whether or not it's true. And truly, you, you can start to heal from that wound because a lot of us marginalized folks, we need to heal first before we can do anything. Paco de Leon, I could talk to you all day. But I will hope that you will come back and be with us again for another show. You're fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. The pleasure was absolutely mine. Just tell us where we can find more of you. Absolutely. You can uh, find me at thehellyeahgroup.com. Every Wednesday, I put out a weekly newsletter called The Nerd Letter. Please sign up. And you can buy my book, Finance for the People, wherever you buy books. Thank you so much. We'll be right back with Catherine and your mailbag. Her Money is supported by VCU, a credit union that helps its members take control of their money using a variety of financial tools and resources. VCU's passion is to empower people to discover financial freedom by providing caring support and services that create the value that you deserve. And you can learn more about VCU and whether you're eligible to become a member of this credit union at www.bcu. And Catherine Tuggle joins me now for our mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. Good to see you. That was a great show and a topic that we don't talk about enough. No, I totally agree. And I just liked her vibe. I liked her sensibility. I understand why her TED Talk has become so popular. Yeah, definitely. And that's her whole title, Finance for the People. I think that you have to be approachable if that is the message that you're going to impart. You have to be able to talk to the every man if you are going to bring finance to people who haven't had it before. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, we've talked before. There's not – we're not talking about algebra and trigonometry, right? We really are talking about concepts that should be – presented in language that everybody can understand. There's nothing all that complicated about them. I'm not talking about derivatives and hedge funds. I'm talking about saving and spending and basic investing and getting 
your credit score in decent shape and paying off your credit card debt, right? There's nothing about that that there should be barriers to entry. It should be presented in language that is just easy enough for everybody to dig into and understand. But as we know, the financial industry has made a lot of money by making it cryptic, by making it complicated, by saying, ooh, we understand this better than you do. And for that reason, you should hire us and give us all your money to, you know, help you with it. And sometimes you need help. I'm a fan of financial advice. I'm a fan of hiring a financial planner when you need one. But we should all feel like we have this basic level of understanding. Yeah, you're so right. I think that a lot of it has been intentionally made hard to understand so that you are forced to hire someone to explain it to you. Or there are some industries and It's so prevalent in the financial industry where barriers to entry are purposefully set up to keep people out. Yeah. And not just the financial industry, by the way. I had lunch with a friend yesterday, and I mentioned to her that we had interviewed her interior designer when we were moving into our new apartment. We worked with a decorator, and believe me, we needed it because we were starting from scratch with this project. And she said to me, oh, my God, I hope you did not hire her. And I said, why? And she said she was cooking the books and we had to fire her. And so whenever money is changing hands, just keep your eye on the ball. There may be things happening that you just do not expect. Yeah, it's such good advice. And I think, you know, it all goes back to those feelings of control once you dip a toe into the water once you see the thin end of the wedge and you do gain that modicum of control it's going to inspire you to go further and dig deeper and always be in the driver's seat like i think that once i got a hold of my financial life i would never let anyone take that away from me and that's such a beautiful thing exactly and i feel even though i have outsourced certain things right i don't feel like i've let anybody take my financial life away from me. I do feel like I'm an incredibly busy person and sometimes things are not going to get the attention that they need. And that's why I have a financial advisor to help. Amazing. That's a nice segue to our first question, actually. Well, let's take one. Our first question comes to us from an anonymous listener. She writes, hi, Jean. I love your podcast. So thank you for all that you do. I'm 33 and pretty financially literate for my age. I've been investing since I was 18. I love investing in real estate, and I've always had side hustles in addition to my full-time job. I have a net worth of $1.7 million with $400,000 in real estate equity. The rest, $1.3 million, is invested in the stock market or in a high-yield savings account for emergencies. I've maxed out my 401k for about 10 years. I have an HSA. I do the max employee stock I can. I have a backdoor Roth IRA and more. I used to have a financial advisor for about 10 years, but I found that I was invested in mutual funds and paid front loads of 5.75% plus commissions. Hold there. Okay. Just hold there because we haven't talked about loads before, I think, on this show, maybe ever. Loads are sales charges. So when people talk about front end loads or back end loads, those are sales charges for getting into or out of particular mutual funds. 
amazing. And I was about to pause anyway to say that to be at 33 and have this net worth is astounding. So amazing job. She says, so I've been doing my own investments for the past five years. However, I'm saving more and more each month and feeling like I'm handling more than I really should be on my own. I checked out some wealth managers, but still found 1% fees or higher in those services offered, which I'm trying to avoid. So I have two questions. Number one, would you recommend I continue my search of looking for a fiduciary that fits my needs, given my portfolio, so we can come up with a strategy going forward? Or do you think I'm fine doing it on my own? I also plan to get married and have kids in the future, so I want to make sure the choices I'm making now will be beneficial down the road. Number two, I'd like to become even more financially literate as I'm very passionate about it, but sometimes I find that I don't know what I don't know. I didn't like that I didn't understand high-cost mutual funds when I was younger, so I didn't realize what my financial advisor was investing me in until 10 years later. I've been looking for a more advanced financial class that will help me dive into things, but I'm really not sure where to go. Are there any advanced financial classes you recommend that can take our financial literacy to the next level? I even thought about getting my financial advisory license just to learn so I can make good decisions for my family and understand all of these things now. Even if I sign up with a fiduciary, I want to understand everything they're doing with my money and never be blind to it again. Does that make sense? Your thoughts would be extremely helpful. I so appreciate you and all of your time. You are amazing. Well, thank you so much for the compliment, but you are amazing. Catherine's right. You have done such an unbelievable job of building such a large amount of wealth at an incredibly young age. Let me answer your question separately. The first one is in terms of looking for a fiduciary that fits your needs. I'm going to come back to a sentence in your own letter. You wrote that you feel like you're handling more than you really should be on your own, which to me indicates that, yeah, you need a financial advisor. But it doesn't have to be a financial advisor that you pay to manage your money. It can be a financial advisor that you pay to give you another set of eyes on whatever it is you're doing yourself. If you decide that you want to go down the road of hiring a wealth manager, I'd ask specifically about wealth managers who have a sliding scale, where the more money you have with them, the lower the percentage that they charge you. So for example, I'm with a wealth manager that has a sliding scale. And as I've accumulated more assets over my lifetime, the fee that I pay has gone down and down and down and down. And I just, you know, I think that that is a very attractive fee structure. The other thing, though, that you may want to look at are these financial advisors who are fiduciaries who operate just by charging you a fee for the plan that you then execute yourself. Because clearly, you've been doing your own investments for the last five years. You are perfectly capable of executing on your own. As your life gets more complicated, As you get married, as you have kids, as you have less time, you may decide that the wealth under management model makes more sense. 
because you no longer have time to be buying and selling your own investments. But for now, I think it probably would work. And so let me point you to a couple of different resources. The first is the XY Planning Network. The XY Planning Network is a network that has grown for millennials and members of Gen X and Gen Y. So check that out. The other place to look is the Garrett Planning Network. That's a network of fee-only advisors where they are willing to charge by the hour. So I'd point you to both of those things. And interestingly, one of the founders of the XY Planning Network is a guy named Michael Kitsis, who is a professor at the American College. And that's where I would suggest you look for courses to further your own financial education, particularly if you're thinking that you may actually want to get licensed as a CFP. We've talked before on this show about the fact that we're launching an investing program of our own, and that might also be something that is of interest to you. It's called Investing Fix, and I don't know how much detail I've gone into about it, but essentially... I've teamed up with Karen Feinerman, who many of you may have seen on CNBC. She is a rock star trader. And we're running this course together where we'll be teaching about particular investments each month during a couple of online sessions. And then the members of this program will be able to participate in voting on the assets that we add to our portfolio. So if you're interested in more information on Investing Fix, we are in beta right now and we'll soon open to a wider group. And you can just send us a note at contact at hermoney.com and we'll get you on our list to get the information to see if it works for you. But let me just say again, kudos, like you are doing such an amazing job and don't beat yourself up for feeling like you want a little help with this. Whatever model you choose, that person should 100% be a fiduciary. Yeah, that's such a great point. And honestly, don't beat yourself up about paying more in fees than you wanted to pay. You are doing so well financially and every financial move that we all make, it's all a learning process. So you're doing amazing. Absolutely. Our last note comes to us from Christina. She writes, Hey, Jean, I'm a 62-year-old woman, divorced and living with my boyfriend. I haven't been able to work for the past two years because I injured myself at work, and I've been receiving a third of my salary from workman's compensation. My question is, can I invest money into my Fidelity Roth IRA or into my Fidelity Roth 401k from workman's compensation payments? Thank you so much. Hi, Christina. First of all, I'm so sorry about your injury. I hope that you are on the mend or at least starting to feel better. And I wish that I also had better news for you. The money that you invest in an IRA or a 401k, it has to come from earned income. And unfortunately, workers' compensation doesn't qualify as earned income. Earned income has to be income that you actually earn and workers' comp is an insurance payment. What I would suggest, if you have the ability to to save 
the money, to put it aside, is to put it aside either in an investment account where you just decide that you're going to invest it and do it in a taxable account, or you save it and then you heavy up on your IRA or your 401k contributions once you're back in the workforce, whenever that is expected to be. But don't let the fact that you're not receiving these tax benefits in the here and now stop you from just putting the money aside. That's an opportunity that you don't want to waste. Yeah, you're so right, Jean, about not wanting to waste the opportunity. Thank you so much. Thanks, Catherine. And in today's Thrive and at HerMoney.com, we're taking a look at some morning routines of very successful CEOs. We chatted with women leaders from around the country to find out how they start their day, and we couldn't wait to share what we found. For starters, the night before, They like to check their full schedule for the day and make sure they've got a sense of how everything is lined up, including their workouts, their downtime, their work, of course, but also their time with the kids and the family. Also, in general, they're up early. Some rise as early as 4.30 in the morning, but all of the CEOs that we spoke to are up by at least 6.45 at the very latest. They use those early morning hours to journal, practice gratitude, meditate, go for a walk or a run, listen to a podcast, hopefully ours, or simply sit in silence and give their brains some time to be free. And when their alarms do go off, they are up. We heard from more than one woman that she does not hit the snooze button because Every day is a gift, and our job is to get started making the most of each day. Also, the CEOs we spoke with, they love a good to-do list. I am right there with them. I love having a physical, handwritten list of what I have to get done each day. And lastly, and this was my favorite, they advised us to let go of perfection. If you are pressed for time, at some point, something's got to give. And some days, that's going to be your hair. Some days, it's going to be bumping one of those items off your to-do list until tomorrow. But if given the choice, don't sacrifice the time that you've set aside for yourself because you can't give from an empty well. I hope that you'll read more at hermoney.com where you can also sign up for the Her Money Council. As part of the Her Money Council, you'll become one of our inner circle, one of our advisors. You'll weigh in on research, events, content, big ideas, and you'll have a more direct line to the Her Money team. If you're interested, again, the way to do it is to follow the links in the show notes or email contact at hermoney.com and we'll get you added. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Paco for her inspiring story. I hope that you're just as ready as she was to truly get a grip on your finances. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.